Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. and welcome to another episode of the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Brittany Mangelson, and today we have on Sarah Hanks and Nancy Ross, who have edited a new book to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Feminist Mormon Housewives, and it is called Where We Must Stand, 10 Years of Feminist Mormon Housewives. So we have on again, we have on Sarah and Nancy. So welcome to Project Zion. Thank you. So Thank you. Um, let's just introduce yourselves really quick. Uh, Sarah, why don't we start with you? Just let our listeners know a little bit of your background and who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up in St. George, uh, the St. George area, um, oldest of five kids, very Mormon family, um, and grew up, went to college, got married, had kids, kind of all the, I don't know, all the benchmarks that I was expecting. But I also, um, had some, in adulthood, had some issues with the church and mostly based around feminism. And so I found Feminist Mormon Housewives, um, I think I was 19 or 20, and um, and then later on became a more devoted reader as my uh, faith crisis sort of mounted and cycled. I began actually writing for the blog in uh, 2013, um, and then the following year, 2014, was when the blog celebrated its 10-year anniversary. And so at that point, I began working on this book. Yes, that's 2014 to 2018. It has taken a while to come to fruition. But um, i that's my background as far as the blog goes. Um, I'm a mom of two. I'm a writer, an editorial assistant, and um, total nerd for tarot and astrology. Just going to throw that one out there as a little bonus info. And um, I live in Layton, Utah now. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you, Nancy? Well, um, so I'm a professor in Southern Utah as well. So I live kind of where Sarah grew up um, in St. George, Utah. And I first encountered feminist Mormon housewives in two th- probably in about 2005. I was about 25 and I was looking, we, we were kind of, in the kind of planning, like the pre-pregnancy planning stages of family and life. And I started reading Mormon blo- Mormon women's blogs, particularly I was a big fan of like Mormon mommy wars. And some of them, uh, Mormon mommy wars bloggers were also, or they'd kind of uh, referenced feminist Mormon housewives, or some of them had blogged or guest blogged for feminist Mormon housewives. And so I got pointed to the Mormon feminist blogs of Feminist Mormon Housewives, Zillow Fahad's Daughters, and Exponent um, at about that time. And then it became like my guilty pleasure, right? There, there were so many times where I was like, okay, I am just going to quit reading FMH because it feels a little bit ahead of where I was maybe in my faith crisis or a little bit scandalous at times. So I have to say that, you know, I quit reading FMH pretty intentionally, like a whole bunch of times, and then just kind of kept coming back. And as especially when I was a young mom, and life was really hard, because I thought motherhood would feel more enjoyable, or feel easier, or feel happier. Um, And I was struggling with 
depression at that time, um, I felt like FMH was just a huge lifeline to me that there were other women who were experiencing similar things and, you know, really trying to like live the gospel to be faithful LDS and also wrestling with feminist issues. And I had kind of considered myself like a, like a very quiet kind of private feminist for a long time. Um, but I just, I feel like it really came to a head when my kids were little and I was struggling to kind of try to do the mostly stay at home mom thing. And it really wasn't working for me. And I felt like the blogs and especially feminist Mormon housewives just became my go-to place and it was years before I ever commented on, on the blog. I read the blog for years and years before um, ever commenting. But but it was just a it was just a home for me. It was a it was like a place of solace. It was a place where I could get like a little bit of community, even if I wasn't actively participating. So anyway, so that's that's me and FMH. I've never been a blogger. I've done a couple of guest posts, and I love the FMH women. So you know that that's my connection to the blog. Well, thank you for those intros. And I guess, um, not that I really need to introduce myself, but I guess my connection to FMH is Mm -hmm. sounds similar to your guys's. Um, I think I found the blog when I was pregnant with my twins who are now seven. Mm -hmm. So it was right around 2010 or so. And it, it also became a lifeline. Um, I was definitely a baby feminist, like super baby feminist. Mm -hmm. And I was really intrigued, um, at how maybe the progressive, uh, corner of the church, the LDS church could work, make it work. And so, you know, when I was, I have two daughters and, um, figuring out if, how I could raise empowered women in the church. And so Mm -hmm. FMH kind of became my lifeline too. Um, I have left the LDS church, um, obviously for regular project sign listeners, that's not a surprise. Um, But, uh, yeah, I, I left the Facebook group and stopped the blog, stopped reading the blog for quite a while. Um, and like Nancy, I just kind of kept coming back to it. Um, and I've also guest posted a couple of times. Um, and yeah, it's been great, which makes me really excited about this book to kind of have, you know, 10 years of work just all smashed in together into a, a volume. Um, yes. that's very consumable. I was just going to say that, um, so Easily the best part of editing this book was that Sarah, I mean, if we can just kind of flow naturally into a thing, you know, was um, Sarah, Sarah um, brought me on uh, maybe about late summer and we, and then I started reading the blog post that she had, um, you know, kind of the list, she kind of condensed a list of blog posts that she wanted and we needed to cut that by about half or down to a third or so of what she had. And so I had the opportunity to go and read all those blog posts that I had identified with when I was a young mother that I haven't really touched in years and years. And, and it was just like the happiest walk down memory lane. Um, I would have said that at that stage of my life, I, I wasn't a very happy person and I was really struggling, but I remember all the good, warm, fuzzy feelings that I felt when I first read those blog posts. And it was such a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Reading what I had done um, when I first started working on the book was I read through every single post that had been published from August 2004 when the blog was launched to August 2014. And it was over 4,000 posts. Like, and it, it, I read through all of them and I tried to pare them down as like to the bare essentials. And then I had to cut that list down like three more times because there's so much there is just so much 
gorgeous, insightful, funny, cool content on this blog and reading it. I mean, like Nancy, reading through all of that in such a condensed period of time was my favorite part of the process too. It was, it was an amazing exercise. And along with that, there's such a variety of topics and information um, and experiences on FMH. So I can only imagine um, how that would be to read all of it at once and then to have to figure out, you know, what are the, what's the best of the best, what's Mm -hmm. worth actually publishing. So can you tell me a little bit about that process? I mean, how did you edit down? Yeah, Uh, and totally. I absolutely can. So So like I said, the first step was to read through everything. I had come on as a reader in 2007, you know, so I had, and and like I said, the blog started in 2004. So like I had read a good number of these posts, but I really wanted to do what I could to get as good a sense of like what the blog actually offered to the world. And because I really want more than anything, I just wanted the book to be as accurate a representation of the blog as possible. Like that, I, I didn't know how to make any other kind of statement with the book or have any goal other than to just let it be a, a good reflection of what the blog was. And so that was my first step. I just, I made a huge Google doc of every post that seemed like it could be a contender. I still have that original printout where I like, you know, after I'd made that big list, like categorizing everything and highlighting and crossing out and stuff. It's, it it was, it was quite an adventure to do that. But the idea was I wanted to make sure that different topics were really well represented. You know, I wanted to make sure that we had the modesty posts and we had the polygamy posts and we had the faith affirming posts and also the very, you know, angry faith crisis posts. Like I wanted to make sure it was kind of all blended in a mixture that felt authentic and sincere from what the blog actually was. And then um, that was the starting point. And then over time, there was kind of an up and down roller coaster trying to figure out how this book was actually going to exist in the real world. Who was going to publish it? When were they going to publish it? What was it going to look like? And at one point, the plan was to have two volumes, which would have meant that there was room for just a lot more content. And then just plans changed and and things needed to be adjusted. And like Nancy mentioned, we had to take that list and say, okay, what if we, instead of doing two big volumes, what if we do one medium size, but still very healthy size volume? What are the absolute essentials? And at that point, I'm so glad that Nancy came on as sort of a focusing force because she really was the one to say like, okay, we need to make sure that we are developing themes through this book, not just saying, here's a great post, here's a great post, here's a great post, but like, how do they work together to show a progression and to, like I mentioned before, still be an accurate representation of the book and an accurate representation of the journey that the blog went through over those 10 years. And I think that that's the thing that really stands out to me when when I think about the blog, you know, and I've read kind of through these posts a number of times now is that there's so much journey, you know, when, we, when the blog started, um, Lisa Butterworth, who founded the blog, um, and, you know, and if you, you move in Mormon feminist circles, you know, you, you probably know Lisa or have, or have seen her online or have seen her at Sunstone or on a podcast or, you know, somewhere. And she had said that she felt 
like she might be the only Mormon feminist in the whole world, you know, at the point in which she created the podcast or the, the blog, and then very quickly um, came in contact with the history of Mormon feminism and through the exponent women and, um, and, and people who had participated in uh, Mormon women's forum and, and, and other kind of Mormon feminist outlets. And so the, it, it's really quite a journey about learning about Mormon women's history, about learning about LDS history, about discovering uh, faith again and again. Um, and there are just so many wonderful themes. You know, the theme of Heavenly Mother is fairly well developed in the book, um, but also just this idea of like feminist critique. Um, and and the blog was a place for for feminists who were kind of new to feminism to practice that feminist critique, uh, and, you know, kind of in that intersection of Mormonism and feminism. Early on, we one of the blog posts we included was um, of a of Tr- Tracy M. Tracy and um, and she was one of my crossover uh, Mormon Mommy Wars, I think, bloggers. And um, and she wrote a post that 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 was kind of against abortion. And, um, and, and, you know, start, you know, really struck and struggling with kind of mainstream secular feminism. And, you know, I, you know, we really should have like re-interviewed Tracy about that particular post um, today, because my guess is that, you know, some of the things that she said in that post might still stand and others would be probably very different. And so, um, and, and so it's really the book is really this journey of a community and learning and growing up and trying to understand its Mormonism better and trying to understand its feminism better and, and learning to articulate um, those various critiques and, and looking for solutions to various problems and suddenly becoming activists in about 2012. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful journey <laughs> and I feel like I lived it. And I know that that sounds very cheesy, but I, I really felt like my heart was in this project and I just loved reading and rereading and, and, um, and thinking about all those years that had happened because I felt like I had, they were part of my story too. And, and, and I'm sure for a lot of women, well, really for a lot of women, because a lot of people have been reading the FMH blog for a long time, you know, the story of FMH mirrors a lot of women's lives in the LDS church. I was just going to say uh, what you said, you know, the journey that FMH as a group, as a blog, as a institution, if you will, um, has paralleled a lot of individual stories. So it's interesting, um, you know, to, to read the beginning uh, posts from, you know, 2004, 2005, and then to jump ahead um, to the more contemporary ones in 2014 and just see I mean, at risk of like using the tone argument, but the tone argument, <laughs> yeah. you know, just seeing the different topics that are explored um, and the way that they are um, maybe tackled more head on um, there. It, it doesn't seem, at least from my um, overview, uh, brief overview of looking at this, it doesn't seem like there's a, there's just an evolution with how yeah. the women, how the writers um, are addressing these topics. And sometimes, you know, there's similar topics that we were still talking about in 20, oh, totally. you know, 2004, but it's just more direct, which is yeah. awesome. Um, yeah, I think, and I think it actually is like the, the, the evolution is highlighted so much when it is the same topic that's addressed. Mm-hmm. When you take a post, like the one that Lisa published in 2005, that talks about polygamy, mm-hmm. 
And you compare it to one that I think was published in 2013 by Lindsay Hanson Park, also about polygamy. Very different. I mean, and, and of course, they're different women, you know, so you, you can't you can't act like all these women should have the same perspectives at the same times or anything. But there is sort of a, a growth and a progression, I think, from an earlier an earlier time at Feminist Mormon Housewives where any frustrations with the church tend to be presented in this way of like, I'm sorry, but I'm struggling with this. Like, I don't understand this. I don't feel comfortable with it, but there's hedging and there's apology and there's things that people say to kind of try to say, but like, I still believe in the church and, but this thing, I just don't like it. And, you know, it's, it was still brave to say those things. I don't want to act like that was nothing. But then later it tends to, and I think this is even more true. I've been reading the posts that have just very recently been published at FMH in 2018. I think much more now it's like, listen, this sucks and this isn't okay. You know, like this isn't okay. Not, I'm not okay. And I hope you can accept me even though I'm not perfect, but actually a critique of the system, a critique of the culture, a critique of whatever the issue at hand is, there seems to be a lot more boldness and a willingness from these women to say like, no, there's an actual problem going on here. And it's not a problem of my perception or my lack of understanding or my weakness. It's a problem with the thing itself. And I, I, so in the very first polygamy post that Lisa posted, um, she, she basically says, I don't want to talk about polygamy. Like, and I'm not really like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. And, you know, I don't really necessarily want to unpack that. Um, and then now I feel like it's all polygamy all the time, not necessarily on the blog, but, but there's so much discussion and, and without, without fear, um, and without, you know, I don't really want to, you know, without that hesitation that Sarah, you just described, um, or apology or, you know, I feel like I need to be okay with polygamy, but you know, I don't know how to be okay with polygamy. You know, you get a lot of women coming out and just saying, you know, polygamy is terrible. That was, that was a terrible thing, you know, and 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 a really bad idea. And so I feel like that's, that is the story of the community and coming and coming that far, being kind of afraid to face these difficulties, but wanting and needing to face them and to, to kind of boldly critiquing them. And, and that's really, that is the beauty of the journey. Sorry, I'm just going to come out with a bunch of like really cheesy cliches. There's so much joy in the journey, I wouldn't you it. say? <laughs> Sorry. No, no, but no, right. I love it. But that growth that gro- that growth is the really wonderful thing because we all want to be like oh well you know i've always been a you know woke social justice warrior but but actually you know in 2004 so few of us knew anything about anything yeah totally yes I, I guess my question would be um what do you and this might be obvious but what do you guys think has changed in the mormon feminist community what has kind of propelled the community onto this more social justice just being unapologetic about equality journey i write this history all the time um so i i think a couple of things happened i think the boldness of tone really changed after kate kelly's excommunication you know i think of especially some of the posts by lindsay hansen park in the in the kind of aftermath of kate kelly's excommunication of june in june of 2013 um for for her very public work with ordained women. And I really felt like the, you know, FMH had always been or had been bold in those years and kind of 
increasingly bold. And quite frankly, when I first started reading FMH, I was like, do these women even know that they shouldn't be saying these things or shouldn't be saying these things in public? You know, so, so it was already, you know, bold, you know, to begin with, but as it, um, as we became more involved in activism with wear pants to church and the um, temple um, menstruation and baptism issue in 2012, 2013, just so much of this um, kind of really came to a head. And in the aftermath of Kate Kelly's excommunication, I really saw some of the gloves come off um, with the, or I, that's what I felt like I, that I have seen with the bloggers um, in the summer of 2013. Also then just at the time in which our book ends um, in the late, late summer of 2014, the community begins to wrestle with uh, issues of race. And, and that isn't captured in the book because that's not really part of the, part of the first 10 years. I mean, that kind of happens in the months, you know, after the book ends, but um, really start to wrestle with what, what, what happened in Ferguson and um, police brutality and violence. And, you know, that kind of spiraled into, months-long, very difficult conversations on Facebook. And and uh, and there have been voices in the community calling for a greater awareness of intersectionality, a greater awareness of the community's white privilege um, for, for a while. But a lot of us, myself included, had had a hard time hearing or understanding those voices. But there were both, you know, some external factors um, of people of particularly women of color bringing that their pain into our into you know the very white spaces of Mormon feminism, and white women for the first time really having to wrestle with what does that mean and what does that mean about our community and how do we get better at this um, feministing thing um, to make sure that we are including you know not just middle upper class white women but but reaching towards a goal of greater inclusion of all women. Mm-hmm. I, I would wholeheartedly agree with everything Nancy said. Um, I think there is also kind of a progression. The first thing that we see in the book as being really a, um, a an engagement on a political level and therefore kind of an activist level was Proposition Eight. Not that not that there was a lot of talk on there was some talk on FMH of trying to confront the church's support of Prop Eight. Um, but mostly it was more like a grappling, like, okay, this is like a very, this is like bringing all my issues to the surface. This is something that I disagree with that the church is doing very publicly. And I have to wonder about how my tithing money is being spent. And I have to talk to my family about this. And now I'm on social media. So I have to decide what I'm going to say there. Like, I think that was kind of a, a tipping point. And then in the years following there just did seem to be this sense of a, a, a mounting confidence in our ability to do some things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it started like, like Nancy mentioned, as far as FMH is concerned, it started with this little post about girls going to the temple for baptisms and being told that they couldn't do baptisms if they were on their period. And that was a thing where a lot of readers on FMH was like, we're like, well, that's clearly not okay. And we can do something about this. We can just at least call the temples and like not even ask them to change anything, but just find out what the policies are so that girls can be prepared and not embarrassed at the baptismal font. And so that was one little activist thing. 
And that actually got a response from the church, which is, you know, there was like a public statement saying, you know, from the PR department, which I think was kind of heady for a lot of the women and men at the blog who were just like, whoa, we can actually like they hear us like they know we exist. That happened where pants to church happen. The petition for women to pray in general conference happened, and that actually a woman actually did pray in general conference. So there was sort of this mounting thing where it started to become more and more um, imaginable that like some forms of activism might be okay. And I don't think I don't think that was like a comfortable place for a lot of women, a lot of Mormon women, to stand. But they like started to feel like it was possible, and then ordain women. And then we all know what happened after that. But I think that was kind of the progression. I like your comments about Prop 8 because I think, you know, FMH came out very like boldly, like, you know, they were very bold and unapologetic on their stance of Prop 8 and supporting the LGBT community. And even at that time, that really surprised me because you know, there weren't a lot of other really public voices and other people on other blogs weren't necessarily on other kind of fringe Mormon blogs weren't kind of coming out and saying, this is wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think F- FMH changed its like blog banner to be all rainbow themed yeah. and it stuck that way for years. Yeah, um, absolutely. And there had been, as a side note, a related side note, one of my greatest <laughs> um, sadnesses regarding this book is that there was no practical way for us to fold comments in because the commenting was something that was such, I mean, that was at least half of what was happening on the blog. Um, and, and I think there had been in the comment section um, for years, some very dedicated gay women who were, who had been years been <laughs> educating commenters one by one on these topics and and that continued through the prop 8 um debacle and 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 so then it felt more and more like these are our people even though at the Mm -hmm. time there were no to my knowledge there were no lgbtq um writers at the blog there were still people who were in that community who were also very much a part of the mormon feminist community and the fmh family and so it all kind of played together and and Nancy's right there was there there wasn't really any ambiguity at least not that i recall from the writers at fmh on prop 8 they were all like we don't like this we're not okay with it but the commenters really took them to task on that because there were plenty of commenters saying follow the prophet we don't we don't understand we but we don't need to understand we just need to follow the prophet and so it was it was quite a debate for a very long time so I think, um, so, and obviously like this lived reality is very familiar to the three of us because, you know, we lived it and, you know, we, we've been present in these conversations for a long time now, mm-hmm. but the listenership for this particular podcast is a little more mixed. And one of the things, right. And, and, and you know, I know a lot of community of Christ people listen, a lot of people in the Latter-day Seeker that kind of you know, investigating community of Christ people listen and probably, um, you know, in the progressive Mormon community and who else knows, like who else listens to this podcast. But um, one of the things that I love about the blog is that you, it's, it's like Mormon women in, in this very conservative tradition, you know, trying to really wrestle with the cultural norms and the way in which 
the message of Jesus is presented within Mormonism, which, you know, now I'm aware is, it is so very unique. That is like the nicest way that I can put that. It's so very unique. And so, um, you know, when I've had these conversations with people who, who have been like lifelong community of Christ, um, you know, the idea, like follow the prophet, you know, always defer to leadership. A lot of these things seem so um, unusual to them or foreign, but, um, but these are the things that, that we as a community wrestled with long and hard. And um, part of me thinks that's a really beautiful wrestle. Sorry, this is, I, I'm not normally this cheesy, but we're just going to go with it this evening. Yeah. Um, but but to understand like the lived experiences of what it is to live as a woman in this tradition, when typically, you know, the forward face of Mormonism is really a bunch of suited men. And so, you know, like, what does that look like on the ground in women's experiences? How does that very patriarchal religious culture kind of impact the lives of women? And, you know, even the forward facing women's view of Mormonism is not the critiquing, um, point of view. It's the, you know, we, you know, we love our husbands. We love staying home. We love this, that, and the other thing. Um, but what happens when it doesn't work out? You know, what happens when, um, you know, a, a woman's life in patriarchy is not a happy, happy thing. And, and I think that that's a really revealing piece of this book, which, you know, I imagine that a lot of Mormon feminists are going to be like, oh, I want to relive, you know, those days or, you know, oh, I want to find out, you know, I'm a new Mormon feminist and I want to find out about this issue of Mormon feminism. But I think that if you're not a Mormon feminist, um, you can read this book and see like, these are contemporary women in America wrestling with the stuff that not ev- that, that a lot of communities wrestled with generations ago or ge- a generation or two ago that we are wrestling with today. And I think in a tradition that's seen typically, I think, as being kind of ordinary conservative and not necessarily very extreme. And yet the gender politics often play out in fairly extreme ways, mm-hmm. if, that, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I have a bunch of... Um, secular feminist friends who were like, I can't wait to read the book because I just don't get it. But I see that you've been involved in this thing for a really long time. And I kind of want to learn to like get it or to get some insight. And I'm pretty confident that like that reading, that reading the book, that reading these blog posts will, will help them understand what that experience is. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree too. And I have to be honest, hearing you guys talk about FMH during Prop 8, um, I was not an FMHer at that time. Um, And I'm really surprised um, actually to hear that, you know, FMH changed their banner to a rainbow and that there were really affirming blog posts um, because I would have been among those who, you know, in my heart, I was okay with marriage equality. And I thought that that's the way that society should bend. Um, you know, like the arc of justice should bend. Um, Mm -hmm. but I was really loyal to the church. And so I thought, well, you know, that's the world. And, but we, as a church, we have to stand strong. And I mean, it's humiliating to admit that, um, at this point in my life, very embarrassing. (laughs) Um, but that's, that's where I was, you know, even 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And, uh, so yeah, t- to I guess I don't want to I don't I don't think we can overstate how bold FMH was even in their apologetic stage, if you will. I mean that's mm-hmm. it, that takes a lot of courage. Oh, absolutely. I mean it was that like along the way 
there were all these, um, you know, as we've been talking about kind of the steps mm-hmm. in the escalating activism or activist um, stance of Mormon feminists. All along the way, there were plenty of Mormon feminists saying, guys, don't do this because it's too dangerous. It is too risky. We've been, we've had our little corner and our little blog where we could say what we felt and we could talk with each other and we could know that we weren't alone. And if we get, if we poke our head up too high, we're going to get slapped down like a -a whack-a-mole machine. Like we can't get too feisty, you know, and, and that's because there, there was risk involved in, in saying things like, no, I don't support Proposition 8. No, I don't think the prophet is right on this. Or even saying, like, I have questions in my heart. Like, there are plenty of people who that would get you a talking to from the bishop. So it, it was brave and it was bold, um, even though I think you can also look back and say that doesn't mean that it was necessarily enough. You know, that I think there's there's all of these perspectives that are all valid, but it, it took it took a little bit of risk for sure. And, and I think, no, it was, it was totally risky. And I remember seeing those posts in the run up to the election and the vote on Prop 8. And, you know, I didn't think that this was a good idea, but I, that was not something I could say out loud. Right. And it, like, it, right. Like as a bisexual woman, like this was not something I could say out loud. And I remember having a very close, like a very kind of a conversation with a student at some point around this time, um, you know, who was just in the very earliest stages of, of like the very earliest stages of coming out. And it was, it was hard for me to talk about because, and I remember kind of saying these things in like hushed voices because it just seemed so scandalous. And there's so much um, push for conformity in, in the LDS community where, you know, like, in, in, in community of Christ today, you know, you can disagree. There's a lot of disagreement, right? There's a lot of disagreement about, about things and policies and issues. And, and, and that's part of the beauty, I think, of community of Christ. Um, and even whole congregations can disagree, you know, about things like the status of LGBT people or whatever. And, and, and while I wish that, you know, maybe they wouldn't, you know, but, um, but, but that's, but that exists, but within Mormon congregations, you really can't disagree like that. And you can't disagree like that in public and out loud and in any kind of pushy way. And yet that's what FMH was doing. And, and and I think that that paved a way for people like me, for probably people like all of us at that time to, to realize that maybe all of our values weren't in line with the church's values and that we had to, you know, that maybe there were going to be some tough choices. Definitely. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think I'm um, just thinking of my own journey with FMH. I think that that's why once I decided to leave the LDS church, which was immediately following Kate Kelly, um, I just kind of exploded and there was like, there was no going back. I mean, I literally did not go back to my uh, ward, um, not a single time. And I think it's because I had had so much buildup through communities like FMH and Exponent, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it almost just created this pressure cooker of, stuff. I don't even know. (laughs) And, and yeah, once it, once it exploded, it just exploded. So, so you guys have talked a lot about the themes in the book. Um, I know Nancy, you said that heavenly mother is a strong one. Uh, It sounds like there's a couple posts on polygamy, but what are some of the other just reoccurring themes that come up in these, in these posts that you highlight? Um, There are a lot of posts 
um, about motherhood and the the actual experience of motherhood and then also motherhood's place in kind of the Mormon imagination and what we imagine motherhood is supposed to be like and how it's supposed to feel and how good we're supposed to be at it. Um, that was especially prominent, you know, in the very early days of FMH, it was, um, it was the Lisa show in a lot of ways because Lisa was like the main writer. She was the main driver behind everything and and that was the stage of life that she was in. She had three very young kids. I think I think when she started the blog, she had three kids under the age of four, and and she was a stay at home mom. And um and so that was where a lot of her stuff was coming from. And it was very vulnerable, which I think is one of the things that that that's one of the hallmarks of Lisa's. Um, <laughs> she calls it benevolent dictatorship. It's one of the hallmarks <laughs> of her benevolent dictatorship on the blog is that there is such a sense of vulnerability. She writes posts and we have one or two in the blog that are just about how very much she hates being a stay at home mom to young kids and how unfulfilling she finds it and how depressing it is and how unfair it is that women should have to do this unseen work, um, unvalued work without any respite, you know? And so like, that's there. And that, again, that's something that you wouldn't really say in church, you know, but, Mm -hmm. but this was a way to say that kind of thing among other Mormon women. And for the most part, get a whole lot of like, yeah, me too. So that is one major theme um, that especially prevailed like in the earlier years of the blog. Definitely. Um, I think modesty and bodies and sex, modesty, bodies, and sex are another running theme throughout the the book. So um, I just wrote the book description like yesterday or something like that and mentioned, you know, that it's got about uh, like a very detailed accounting of quite possibly the worst sex talk ever by a bishop to the, to like the women's group, the Relief Society. And, and with the whole rebuttal of that from um, Natasha Helfer Parker, who is like a sex therapist about how, wow, that's, you know, just a whole lot of bad rape culture. And, but the thing is that so many women, we, we may not have all experienced like that particular version of the talk, but I think so many of us received so many damaging messages about sex and bodies and modesty and um, growing up as women in the LDS church. And um, yeah, that's, that's just a really big and important theme. Um, Also, it's interesting to note that I think in the official Latter-day Seeker training, that's actually a post that they read. Um, So like, if you're going to be officially Latter-day Seeker trained as a community of Christ person, then you have to read the awful sex post, um, the sex talk (laughs) post. (laughs) Yep. And so, um, and it's funny because my pastor, Emily has been like, I've been in groups that really don't want to read it. (laughs) She's like, we're going. Um, (laughs) But, (laughs) but, um, you know, I feel like that is a kind of insight into like the lived experiences of Mormon women, that's super important and very revealing and is never going to come up in a polite conversation about, about like Mormon women's lived experiences. And I love that authenticity that like the, as Sarah said, that vulnerability, there's another blog post where Fran, uh, who blogged as Thunder Chicken, I don't know why she chose that name. It just seems so ridiculous now. Because it's amazing. But, I love it. I love Thunder right, Chicken. But I, 
I love Fran, but she wrote a post that's called the history of her breasts or the history of my breasts. And that is probably my all time favorite post because she's talking writing about a history of her body and how other people had viewed and talked about and interacted with her body and such a, such vulnerability and writing about like these really vulnerable things like experiences from abuse to, you know, how people viewed her body and her breasts to having sex for the first time as a newlywed, like, like there's just, there's just, it's so very real and it's so very vulnerable and it's so very insightful into like, you know, and, you know, obviously Fran's history of her breasts isn't the same as my history of my breasts, but I just felt there was so much resonance with her experiences. Um, it was just really powerful. So yeah, sex and bodies and modesty. There's a lot of that. Yeah. Um, another that I think comes up a lot is the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, starting with, there's one from written by Carolyn Klein, who is pretty prolific at the exponent. And she p- contributed this as a guest post. And I was, I was actually just reading it um, again yesterday, trying to pull out different quotes that we could use for a little book promotional materials. And it just struck me again, how, oh my gosh, how, how much it um, spoke to me from my own experience, my own experience going to the temple for the first time a week before I got married, receiving my endowment. It changed the trajectory of my whole life and my whole engagement with the church. And it was just like, the way she expressed it, it was the same thing. It was her first time going to the temple. It was heartbreaking, but also like so magical and powerful the way that she put words to it. And I think to kind of go back just briefly to the idea of evolution on the blog, what's interesting to read sometimes are the little prefaces or the little afterthoughts that the blog editors would put on these things because before they they posted that they knew that was going to be their first big post that was like critical of the temple, which is like the sacred cow. You can't be critical of that. And they very clearly put out like, be very careful with your comments, everybody like admin note, we are not going to countenance any funny business on this. Like we need to be respectful of Carolyn, but we also can't say too much about the temple. And it was, it was something that I'm sure they had to consider very thoughtfully whether they were willing to go there. Um, but the temple does become, there's a post later from Natalie Hamilton Kelly, who became one of the most like, again, bold voices on the blog talking about her temple experience. It was, that was a recurring theme for sure. We also see, um, you know, from about 2012 onward, activism emerging as a theme that is discussed when Ordain Women goes live on March 17th in 2013, all the FMH bloggers respond. So there's a big kind of super post of um, a bunch of the perma bloggers responding. And, you know, it's funny because not too much longer after once people got comfortable with the idea of ordinary women existing and they had had a few activist events, there was almost universal support within the, within the kind of Mormon feminist community, or it felt like there was a great deal of support in the Mormon feminist community for what ordained women was doing. But in those first days, you know, that was again, breaking new ground and the bloggers were very much, there's a lot of uncertainty in that post as to like, I don't really know how I feel about this or with some people saying, you know, I feel really strongly about this and other people, you know, really trying, trying to wrestle with, with what this was. But for many of those people, 
their view on that would change and it would change pretty quickly. And, um, you know, I think the way in which the community and, and, and the blog kind of kept breaking new territory and then having to respond to new situations and then normalizing some of those new critiques, which is such an important thing. And then eventually moving into the space of, okay, well, let's, you know, call up temples about and find out about their policies with regard to menstruation and baptism, you know, and then to, okay, people were wearing pants to church, you know, and, um, and that sounds so silly, you know, um, and I've had so many English friends being like, always wear pants to church. You shouldn't be telling people this, you know, and, um, uh, but, but to then, um, a couple of months after pants church for myself being like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just start wearing pants to church now. And I never really went back. And so, you know, I mean, there's so much like growth, right? It's, it's like the community in the throes of wrestling with these new things. And, um, and, and it just, I feel like that's just so human. Right. It, it, it's so human. The, the new thing comes out and you're not ner- sure how you feel about it. And it takes time and, and the, you have, but you have other voices, you know, who maybe have come to a realization of some things earlier and are, you know, kind of leading a charge. And I don't know, it's, it's of a community learning and growing. And so as much as it's, you know, the vulnerable and wonderful stories of individuals about their individual lives and the way that those stories resonate with other women, it's just also a powerful story of a growth of a community. When Lisa first started blogging and created FMH, you know, a year before Peggy Fletcher Steck, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, religion writer at the Salt Lake Tribune, had written an article that is cited fairly frequently in the book um, called where have all the Mormon feminists gone because the Mormon feminist community was in decline and, and in pretty serious decline. And organizations like the exponent were having a lot of difficulty finding people to take over stuff as the community, as the initial community aged. Um, but it's not just that FMH revitalized the whole movement, but FMH and other blogs, but, you know, but FMH was certainly part of that momentum and that movement of Mormon feminism and online spaces that really drew so many new voices and, and people to it. You know, it's such, such an important, like, historical piece of the Mormon feminist movement. I really like what you guys are saying. And um, one theme that I'm noticing among the themes is having lived a great deal of my life within Mormonism, these are all the topics you don't talk about. I mean, like they really are like the places you don't go. You don't talk about the temple. You don't talk about your body. You don't talk about sex. You don't really even talk about modesty unless you're completely praising it. Certainly you don't talk about polygamy, um, LGBT issues. I mean, these are all things that, um, even just discussing them, let alone having an opinion about them that might be even semi-contrary to the LDS church's stance. You just don't talk about these things. Um, Uh So I think it's interesting that FMH was able to get, you know, hundreds, thousands of readers and writers and people engaging in the blog um, with all of these topics that you just cannot talk about in church. Um, One thing I was going to ask is, in your um, compiling this book, were you able to see stats on the blog posts? I mean, do you have like statistical numbers about visits or anything like that? Um, I did. I do have access to it. I didn't compile them up. the The tricky thing. This is kind of internet nerdery, blog nerdery. the The thing is that um, in the early days, it was feministmormonhousewives.blogspot.com. It was hosted on Blogspot. And 
<laughs> like a dozen or four dozen posts um, from those early years are like, sorry, the blog went down again, everybody. We're trying to get it back up. Or like, we just got it back up, but we lost some comments. Like things were crashing all the time. And so then there was like a, an effort to get things back online and eventually have its own domain. So now that it's just feminist Mormon housewives and, and um, so that makes it, it, it makes it tough to like have a full picture of the history. You can definitely get a good sense of like um, which posts have been the most read since, since FMH has gotten its own, own domain, but it's, it's, it's tricky. It's admittedly like it, it can't be a complete picture just because so many things in those early years were lost and um, crashed all the time. So I study the Mormon feminist community and have done so since about 2013. And so I have a number of like journal articles and book chapters um, talking about some of this stuff. And so in a couple of different places, I've got um, logged some graphs that actually graph uh, the readership um, by month over time. And also I think it's in the voices for quality book, the resurgence of Mormon feminism. It's a, that came out a couple of years ago in 2015. I think, um, there's a graph with number of blog posts per month and then the number of comments per post per anyway, just super nerdy graphy things. Um, I couldn't, I can't point to all the graphs off the top of my head and all the articles, but if you Google me and go to my academia.edu page, they're all there and you can, there's definitely graphing of readership and comments and blog posts and all that kinds of stuff. So, cause I love it. It's just so great. I will be Googling that. <laughs> I was a sociology major for my undergrad. So I dabbled in statistics just a little bit, just enough to have a, an interest in it. So if someone else does the work, so thank you, Nancy, for doing the work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think in the month that Kate Kelly was excommunicated, so that would have been June, 2014. Yeah. Um, I think there were about 150 thousand visitors to the blog, which was a huge spike. Like that was not its normal, but I think, um, I think it peaked in that month, but on, I, and I think typically FMH has like 40 to 50,000. I don't know if that's viewer. I can't remember if that's like viewers or unique viewers or hits or whatever, but, but lots, 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 and lots. I, um, I blog for the exponent these days and, you know, we maybe get 3000 views or hits or unique views, users, but anyway, a day, nothing like FMH. FMH had a huge readership. So it's pretty powerful. Yeah. Pretty wide reach. Yeah. It sounds like it. And it sounds like this blog is going to be able to reach a lot of people too. Um, and it comes out soon, doesn't it? Did we talk about a publishing date or a possibly tomorrow? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So well, we're that's at, great. We're the last and and by tomorrow we mean already. If you're listening to this now, if yeah, you're a podcast listener, um, yeah, um, we're publishing through um, through Amazon's self-publishing platform, and so it's kind of a matter of making sure they can they they have to review things before they're you yeah. know available. Uh, Amazon has to review things, I should say, and so we're just waiting on that. But um, but yeah, it really should be like any minute now pretty much. Yeah, we're pretty I mean, we're pretty excited. And so we're kind of counting this is like a Mother's Day launch, you mm-hmm. know, Mother's Mother's Day weekend launch um for the book. I 
really hate Mother's Day with a fiery <laughs> passion of hatred. And but I feel like I can tolerate this one because um, yeah. I'm just really I'm just really pleased with with what we've done here and and, and all the work that that it that it represents and how it represents the community. And, you know, I'm excited for, for my never Mormon friends to, to, to read the book and maybe be like, Oh yeah, there is some good stuff there, you know? And, you know, I know even if they're not necessarily people of faith. And so, you know, I'm pretty excited about, I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah. Ditto. (laughs) To put it mildly. (laughs) You know, and I may have emailed Sarah, you know, with various kinds of updates about 10 times a day for the last two weeks. So she's probably ready to be, be done. Oh my gosh. No, I'm, <laughs> I am here for it because, you know, I thought this thing was going to sit on a file on my computer until I died. Like I didn't there, it's been such a long process to get it coming out into the world and so many stops and starts. And so the fact that I could have it literally in my hands a week from now is just like, it's, it's the best thing. It's the best mother day, mother's day present imaginable. We will be sure to get this podcast up very soon. So there will be minimal editing. So for our listeners, (laughs) hopefully like the uncut version, which for a Brittany Mangelson podcast can be kind of bad, but (laughs) Um, so what is your hope for this book? Who do you hope it reaches? Um, new people, old people, people familiar with FM8, people not. I mean, what are what is your overall goal for the book? What is your hope for it? I feel like in all areas of my life, Mormon women are pretty much the only people I care about. That's not true. That's not fully true. But they are my people. Like I love... I love Mormon women and I, and I love them whether they're feminist or not. And I, whatever, like, I just, I love being around Mormon women. And I, especially now, like going back through the book one more time and, and getting ready to talk about it with people, I feel so emotional about what this community specifically, the community of Mormon feminists has given to me that I just want them to read it and have some feeling about it. There are things that I read in this book that make me cringe or that make me roll my eyes. There are so many things, so many moments where we didn't do things right or where we, where I think like, oh man, we have grown past this, but this is some evidence that we were really um, bound up in our own privilege and not even aware of it. Like there are those things. And I, what I hope is that this book will will bring up conflicting feelings for people, feelings of so much pride in this movement, so much gratitude for it, and also feelings of, um, of, of needing to have a reckoning with some of the mistakes that we've made too. Like it's all there. And I, and I think um, I, I just want people to feel however they feel about it mostly, but I, but I am, I am mostly concerned with the Mormon feminists who read this book. I would love for other people to read it and I'm sure that they will. And I think, I think it's got so much to offer other people too, but I can't lie. Like my focus is 100% on the Mormon feminists. So I definitely think that that will be our initial audience, you know, and in many ways that's the intended audience. Um, But at the same time, I think that there are going to be maybe new Mormon feminists or people who are exploring um, or suddenly, you know, these days are finding themselves in this maybe transitional space um, who, who hopefully this book will be helpful because it, you know, as the community grows from like baby feminist to 
more mature feminist um, that hopefully there, there are things to be learned. You know, certainly I learned them along the way. We've all, I think, learned them along the way. Um, so I think there's a hope that there can be some education from within, within the community for people who are new. But I think that for people who interact with Mormons or like, you know, people who want to do Latter-day Sacred ministry or who, um, you know, find themselves, you know, trying to understand something about Mormonism, I think this is a great introduction. Um, because I feel like, you know, you know, you could read, you know, the Articles of Faith or the Book of Mormon or, you know, some general conference talks and have a particular view of Mormonism. But this is really an in-the-dirt lived experience of lived Mormonism. And um, the, in many ways, you know, I think, I think it, the book and the blog breathe life into what that experience is and that other people through reading the book can maybe have some better understanding of what that tension is, you know? And so I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing from non-Mormon readers about what they take away from the book and how I can, you know, cause I, I, I know it cause I lived it and I watched it in real time, but um, I'm interested to see other responses. But we've had, we've sent it out to some readers and they've mostly Mormon feminist readers and they've, you know, been very positive. So, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, it's a home, kind of a home run within, within our community, but we'll see what happens outside. Right. And I, I kind of hope too, um, that brave Mormons who aren't of a feminist mindset, mm-hmm. who might get their hands on this book, including those who are related to me and I don't know who else. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of hope I'm, I'm interested to see what they think too, because I think that there is some very tough stuff in this book, stuff that could be kind of offensive or uncomfortable if that's where you're coming from. But I also think, uh, ama- again, going back to the themes of this blog, there is such a theme of love for the church, love for the doctrines, belief in the doctrines, love for Christ. Like it's all in there. And it, and I think that is, that comes through in the book too. And, and I don't know that that's a story that people associate with Mormon feminists very much. If you are kind of a more um, conservative Mormon, I think it's more like the expectation is that there's nothing but criticism for the church when really there's, it's a very complex inner world where you, both love and resent things about the church and and you're just trying to sort it all out. And, and people did try to sort it out on this blog. There are plenty of posts that are just, that could be sacrament meeting talks, you know, that, that where people talk about a spiritual experience that they had that just affirmed their testimony. And, and so, yeah, that, that's something that I'm excited to, to get out there too. So the title of the book, Where We Must Stand, comes from a blog post that uh, Lisa wrote in 2010, where she talks about, you know, there's like the secular feminism on one hand and, you know, the gospel of Jesus and the LDS church on the other hand, you know, now she, anyway, um, might position some of those things a little differently these days, but that's okay. Um, And then just being committed to standing in that middle space of this, like, this is the space wrestling with these things, living with the tension of these things is where we must stand. And so, um, you know, I think that that's such an important uh, thing, you know, you know, the, the, the living intention 
right? We're going to, we're going to live in this, in, in, in this difficult space. And it is a difficult space to, to inhabit for a number of reasons because, you know, of the politics of, you know, secular feminism and conservative Christian tradition, but just a really rich space to inhabit and to write from. I really appreciate um, how you two worded that. And I, have given this book a pretty thorough overview. Um, and it's, it's interesting going over the table of context at, at the beginning and just seeing like, Oh yeah, I remember that post and I remember that post. And this really is the lived experience of so many Mormon women. And like you were saying, Nancy, you know, you can read maybe official church publications and get a, a very, um, one-sided view or a very polished view of what it, what it looks like. Um, and you miss out on a lot of those complexities. Um, and then Sarah, I really like what you said that there, there is a lot of faithful affirming LDS things in this um, because I know all too well that the space of the Mormon feminist um, is a difficult. It is so difficult to navigate all the complexities and, um, you know, just your past experiences, your current experiences, your future hopes, um, all while trying to remain faithful mm-hmm. and convincing other people that you are faithful. And that's not something yeah. that people should have to do. And yet Mormon feminists have to do it all the time. It's um, true. And it's, and it's interesting to see how that comes through, um, yeah, I feel like I could go off for about, uh, you know, 20 or 30 minutes on that. I won't. But I think that there is a, a sense of like really wanting to prove that to people, mm-hmm. because if you're a Mormon feminist who does identify with what the blog's tagline was for a long time, a, a safe place to be faithful and feminist, if it's important to you that you are both faithful to the church and a feminist, then you're probably not just faithful because uh, because of habit or out of family obligation. There's there's often very deeply felt um, connections to the doctrines of the church. And, and people don't, if you're a feminist, people kind of don't believe you about that. And so there is, a, I, I think there were many, many instances of writers at FMH or commenters really trying with all their might to like get that across. And, you know, to some people they succeeded and some they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get the trolls who come in and be like, well, if you really understood the gospel and it's like, you know, and, and the whole, the whole journey of the blog is often really delving into all, as we've said, you know, delving into all these taboo elements of, of Mormonism and really wrestling with them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not a lack of understanding of Mormonism that leads people to Mormon feminism. But um, once you're in that space, there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to wrestle with. Yeah, sure. So what are your hopes, I guess, for the future of FMH? I guess, you know, kind of veering beyond uh, where the book ended. Um, what what do you see for the future of the Mormon feminist community? Mm, that is the big question. <laughs> it really, really is. Um, so I wrote for FMH from 2013 to 2016. And then I retired, I guess. And and so now it's interesting because I do have such not just not a connect not just a connection with FMH as a reader, but as like a former writer and and somebody who's been in the trenches of trying to run this community with the other bloggers who are now still carrying the torch, um, including Lisa and including um, Kalani Tonga and um, a number of others, and the roster is changing and stuff. But I think it's a really difficult moment because for so long, the commitment was to be faithful and feminist that 
And that was a guiding star. And because of, I mean, the list goes on and on because of the excommunication of Kate Kelly, because of the exclusion policy, because of recent scandals around, you know, sexual abuse in the church and because of so many other reasons, political, you know, the Trump era and everything. There are a lot more Mormon feminists who are willing to walk away and who have walked Mm -hmm. away and found it necessary for themselves. And Hey, I'm in that boat. There's, I say that with less than no judgment, like I'm, I'm there, but it does make it, it does make it really difficult to have like a concept to organize around. But I love, I love the new focus of FMH where they have taught instead of a safe place to be faithful and feminist, um, they've transferred over to um, spreading, spreading the, I mean, you might have to help me, Nancy, spreading, spreading the radically inclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is more of a commitment to saying, listen, the church is like all over the place these days and we love things about it and we hate things about it. But ultimately we love Jesus and we love, we, we feel committed to bringing Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God into our little circle, into our little corner of the world. And I think that's beautiful. And I think it has been so led, um, so inspired by the women of color in our community. And I think that that is the story that, that needs to be told going forward. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know where it's going to go. The, the future of Mormon feminism is a big question mark to me, but there are still people who, who care an awful lot and they're doing an awful lot. Yeah, no, I think that's very well said, Sarah. Um, I, I think I think that the community will continue to wrestle with inclusion um, and in many ways. So FemWalk, the feminist Mormon women of color group, um, you know, has done a lot of that leading of the way. Um, and FMH is trying and, 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 you know, really trying to push into that space of, uh, of inclusion, of education, understanding of, you know, what does that mean for, for like lived religion and religious experience, you know, how can we recognize the whiteness and, and, and work against and work against that? Um, you know, there are other, other Mormon feminist spaces aren't there yet, you know? And so um, this effort, particularly led by women of color and, you know, with FMH being part of that FemWalk being another important part of that, um, you know, there's a lot of work to do because in many ways FMH is a little bit more of the radical fringe. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there are other, there are other Mormon feminist spaces who have not wrestled with race. And it's not that FMH did that in a very elegant way, no. but other groups haven't yet done that at all. And so, you know, there's still a sense that, like you said, Sarah, with, with Prop 8, um, that there is some, this, there's some important work that FMH is doing and, uh, and it's taking a long time for other groups to, to follow suit. And that's, that's important work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It is important work and it's a daunting task. And I just, you know, have to give a shout out to all the sisters out there that are still fighting the good fight. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really admirable. I think, is there anything else that you guys would like to leave us with? Um, I have a question for Nancy, actually. Okay. I'm curious. Um, are there any posts that we left on the so-called cutting room floor that like, that used to, that still keep you up at night (laughs) or that you like? Okay. 
So I came in as like the hack and slash editor. So I I don't doubt that there are posts that keep you up at night. (laughs) um, And there were many things that I was sad to let go, Mm -hmm. but I knew that we couldn't really publish 250,000 words. Of course. Of course. So, so I was trying to like boil it down to a hard essence of, you know, what is the reduced essence of like FMH that can, um, really give people a flavor of, you know, what this, what this thing is all about. All of my favorite posts made it in. So I'm good. No, (laughs) joking, but there were, but there were posts about infertility, which were, um, you know, especially within this very strong and very important culture of motherhood Mm -hmm. that were good. I think one or two posts on infertility made, um, made the cut. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And so, Um, But there were just so many directions that, um, you know, we tried to like cover some bases and stick with our themes. Yeah. But, um, you know, so there was a lot, right? There were over, as you've said, over 4,000 posts um, that that fit into this time frame. And we kept about 136. Yeah, Yeah, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a lot of hard cutting, but I'm also really proud of like what, was retained. Not that there weren't, there were a lot of great, there was a lot of great stuff. That oh, was of course. Coming. Of course. Yeah. And, and some of it came down to like, okay, well, you know, this post, this beautifully awesome post is just really, really long and we need to cut some words. So oh, really? we're, mean, we're getting rid of it. I think if, I mean, this, this might be a little inside baseball for the devoted FMH readers, but if it tells you anything, maybe the most influential post that was ever published at FMH, which was the Mormon priestess, which talks Mm. about the temple isn't in there. It was very long. It already exists in Mormon feminism, essential writings that came out a few Mm. years ago from Joanna Brooks, Hannah Wheelwright, Rachel Huntstein lip. And I mean, don't get me wrong that that post it's, it's amazing. It is amazing. But we would have had to cut like five other ones to keep it in. Mm-hmm. And we just had to make tough calls like that. But I, I, f- I feel like that's just indicative of the fact that like it, it's not any kind of commentary on how influential, well-written, well-researched, impactful your a post was. It was just a matter of like a, a 700 intersecting factors. Yeah, no, and I felt bad. Okay, so I feel bad about that one. That <laughs> one, that one, that one, yeah. Um, and then I think there may have been some posts by Star Foxy on Modesty that mm-hmm. maybe also got axed, and you know, I felt really bad about it too. Yeah. I just so, have to keep reminding myself, like they still exist. They still exist no, on the blog, right? Like, and you know, and what a wonderful thing if someone like saw the book or read the book and was like, you know what? I would think I want to go back to the blog and like explore a little more. So, you know, it's, I I think the book is an invitation. Mm -hmm. It's like, here is some of the best of what we have to offer in a particular developing particular themes um, with a particular time on a particular timeline. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I would hope that um, some people who haven't really explored the, the great history and legacy of the blog might be encouraged to do so. Yeah. Yeah, cool. It's a lot of sense. Um, and it gets me really excited to actually sit down and read this book from cover to cover. Um, there's a lot in here that I do recognize, but there's a lot in here that I don't. So once I'm out of school, I think <laughs> this will probably be my first book that I actually sit down and read cover to cover. It's a great beach read, everybody. 
It's perfect. Right. <laughs> totally. All the there's nothing you can't like talk about in church. <laughs> there's nothing like polygamy on the beach, right? No, like, absolutely. <laughs> Polygamy, <laughs> modesty, sex, you know, casual conversations. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, you two. This has been a really good conversation. I'm, I cannot overstate how excited I am for this book. Um, good. I think it's brilliant. And, you know, just a logistical note to know the content that you're getting, it's over 325 pages. Yeah. Um, and there are also essays in the book that, that never appeared on the blog, um, for anybody who's like, but I've read everything. Um, you probably haven't because there's been a lot on the blog, but, um, but even if you've read every post that FMH has ever released there, there's still new content in there along yeah. with introductions, yearly context, footnotes, just tons of extra stuff. No, I was just going to say there's over 50 pages of additional material. So there's a lot of reflection and essay and historical introductions and a bajillion pages of notes. And so yeah, like, yeah, like what, just what Sarah was saying, there's a lot of additional content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. There's a whole section at the very end um, of reflections and there's some really big names, uh, good names, really brilliant names that have contributed mm-hmm. there. So are, is that the new content that you're speaking of? Yeah, it's some of the new content. Um, okay. There's, there's, there are those. There's, uh, there are three introductory pieces: one from me, one from Nancy, one from Lisa. And then Nancy and I both worked on um, introduction. Each chapter is based on a year, and so there's like a yearly essay too to kind of give context for everything. Yeah. Awesome! I'm so glad you guys did this. It's such a, gift, <laughs> such a gift to the community. Good. Good. So yeah, listeners, by the time you hear this, uh, the book will be out, hopefully, fingers crossed and knock on all the wood. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm really excited. So we will definitely put a link uh, with this episode. I'm hoping that it will go up this week. Uh, We're recording this on May 9th, um, and I'm hoping that it will go up in just a couple of days um, on Project Zion. So we'll be sure to link everybody to uh, the Amazon link. Will it just be paperback or Kindle or... Both paperback and Kindle. Awesome. I'm really excited. Good. Us too. All right. Well, thank you guys. Thank you. It's been such a delight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. Dave Hines